Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a Specialist GP, and today I have Dr Glenn Davies with me to discuss reversing type 2 diabetes and shared medical appointments. Glenn is a Specialist GP with dual fellowships in general practice and lifestyle medicine. He works at Taupo Medical Centre and is a passionate advocate of using diet and lifestyle measures to slow down and reverse the progression of chronic disease. Glenn won the prestigious MedTech General Practitioner of the Year Award this year and has recently started a new venture, Reversal NZ, a lifestyle medicine clinic specialising in the delivery of evidence-based nutrition for the reversal and prevention of metabolic illnesses. Welcome, Glenn. Kia ora, Louise, and um, kia ora to everyone else that might be listening. So, Glenn, we're talking about type 2 diabetes, and in many cases, it may be reversible if we take action within the first five years. You've been managing type 2 diabetes in Taupo a little differently and very successfully for a number of years. So, tell us about what the impetus was for your change of approach. Yes, I've thought about that quite a lot, Louise, and um, I don't remember the exact um, sequence of events, but I do remember uh, reading the direct trial, which I think was in December 2017. In that trial, that was using meal replacements, but 76% of the people with diabetes in the calorie-restricted group reversed their diabetes. Um, If I'm remembering correctly, it was down to about 850 calories per day. And that was the first time in my entire career that I'd even contemplated the thought that type 2 diabetes was reversible. And that was a massive light bulb. You know, that was like, whoa, why haven't I heard about this before? Why haven't I been doing this? How do you do this? Do people have to have 850 calories? Do they have to drink milkshakes? You know, what's all this about? And I'm not sure about the time frame, but I listened to Professor Grant Schofield talk at one of the GPCME conferences. Um, that fascinated me. I was fascinated by bariatric surgery and um, the fact that people wake up without an appetite. You know, and how does that all work? But the main thing that happened is I had a patient come in and he he'd reversed his type 2 diabetes. He walked in with a pile of six books. He slammed them down on my desk. He told me that I was swear word useless and um, that I needed to read them, which um, I did. And um, that just changed the way that I viewed diabetes. And I went from thinking this is a chronic progressive condition that leads to blindness and limb amputation and heart attacks um, and dialysis to, wow, this is a reversible condition. But then I had to work out how to do it. So what are you doing differently? So I use nutrition. I think that nutrition is an extremely powerful tool. And I'm distressed that in medicine, we don't recognize it as such. As doctors, we reflexly reach for our prescription pad. You know, I think we take beautiful histories, we do the examination, we do the lab tests, we make a diagnosis, and then we go, which prescription should we write for this? I don't know how that happens. Um, I don't do that anymore. And my, my practice has changed so dramatically. I think 90% of the time I would prescribe nutrition for a, a chronic condition. 
So I'm not saying that there's no place for medications. Of course there are, but I think it's usually not first line um, in chronic conditions. Um, I think it's usually after you've tried to deal with the mechanism of the problem or the biochemistry of the problem, and you do that with an effective diet tool. I would say that in diabetes, for example, diet is 10 times more powerful than any medication because it can cure diabetes and there's no medication, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no medications that can cure type 2 diabetes, but diet can. And using the word cure is a bit provocative. I think the correct word is um, remission or reversal. Reversal means that people have normalized their HbA1c off um, all medications apart from metformin. But the term um, remission means that they've come off all of their medications. And metformin is actually a useful medication. So you've mentioned diet in the direct trial, and they did, I understand, too, use a meal replacement. But uh, what sort of diet are you prescribing? So I prescribe a low-carbohydrate, healthy-fat diet or a ketogenic diet, often in combination with intermittent fasting or um, prolonged fasting. So I describe this as a whole food diet to begin with. So when people think about ketogenic, they automatically think about Atkins. So the, the image that comes into your mind is sitting down with a big block of lard on your plate with a knife and fork and eating your way through it. That's the imagery that comes into your mind. That's nothing like what we're talking about. We're talking about a diet that has trucked loads of green leafy vegetables to begin with, and then that's supplemented with moderate amounts of protein, so that's your meat, fish, chicken, eggs. And then when I talk about healthy fats, that's when it starts getting a little bit um, controversial. But when I talk about a healthy fat, I'm talking about a fat that has been available to mankind for centuries, for millennia, because genetically I believe that we are adapted to deal with those particular fats. So um, I'm talking about avocado, I'm talking about extra virgin olive oil, I'm talking about um, the fat that comes with meat, I'm talking about the skin on the chicken, I'm talking about oily fish. Those are healthy fats and butter. Okay, what I think are unhealthy fats are these modern industrial fats, particularly margarine and particularly canola oil. So let's just, for a moment, if I can, talk about canola oil. So first of all, the canola bean doesn't exist. You know, canola oil stands for Canadian oil. It comes from rapeseed, and it takes 20 industrial processes to turn it into canola oil. That just doesn't fit with my whole food message. Um, and that's why I tell people to stay away from it. There's a lot more science to that too, because these polyunsaturated vegetable oils, because they contain multiple double bonds, they're more susceptible to oxidation. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid oxidation and we're trying to avoid glycation. So I tell people to stay well away from the polyunsaturated vegetable oils, particularly margarine, canola oil. I ask them if they're heating an oil to a high temperature to use a saturated fat, particularly to use coconut oil, because the coconut oil doesn't change its structure when you heat it. I know a lot of people are cooking with olive oil, and I would caution against that, because even though olive oil's a wonderful health-giving oil, I think it's ideally used over um, salads and, and vegetables, 
less so um, to be heated. Can I just ask you how your patients and perhaps your colleagues respond when you tell them they're allowed to have saturated fat? It uh, kind of leads on to a question that I think you might be asking me later, which is how do you do all this in 15 minutes? Because um, when you say to someone that um, saturated fat, as long as it's not associated with carbohydrates, that's the key. Just let me qualify that. The worst thing you can do is have a high saturated fat, high sugar carbohydrate diet. That's called the standard American diet. That's sad. SAD, standard American diet, that is a recipe for every poor health outcome you can imagine. But if you lower your carbohydrates dramatically, you stop all simple sugars and stop all refined carbohydrates, then saturated fat doesn't seem to be a problem. But you've got you to see that within context. I'd hate anyone to listen to this podcast and go away and um, tell people to keep eating their refined carbohydrates and sugar, but now it's okay to have, you know, your butter and lard, which it's not. It is only okay if it's part of a low-carbohydrate diet. And then I have to go into the big, long talk all about, okay, so we, we can do it now if we've got time, but um, so all carbohydrates are sugar molecules linked together. So even if that's your healthy brown rice, even if that's your healthy whole grain Vogel's bread, carbohydrates are sugar molecules linked together. And when you digest them, they become individual simple sugars. And, any, and then that becomes blood sugar. And any excess blood sugar goes to the liver and it gets converted through a process called de novo lipogenesis, the making of new fat, into triglyceride. So when you do your lipid panel and you see triglycerides raised, that is too much carbohydrate in the diet. That is a consequence of high blood sugar. Now, then what happens to it? So that triglyceride has to be transported around the body. Um, so you turn it into a very low-density lipoprotein. It gets rid of a little bit of cholesterol and a little bit of triglyceride because cholesterol is necessary for every cell wall and every cell of the body. Cholesterol is important. And also triglyceride is the best fuel for the body. So these um, lipoproteins are transporting that, the cholesterol, the triglycerides and fat-soluble vitamins to every cell of the body. So when it gets rid of some of its cargo, think of it like a truck, it becomes a bit smaller and it becomes an LDL cholesterol, gets rid of a little bit more cholesterol and triglyceride, it becomes an HDL cholesterol, then that goes back to the liver and the truck gets filled up again and it goes around that pathway again. Now, so LDL is bad cholesterol, and then a second later, it gets rid of a little bit of its cargo and it becomes good cholesterol, HDL. You know, that makes no logical sense whatsoever. So what actually is happening? LDL cholesterol itself is not a problem, but damaged LDL is a problem. So how do you damage it? You glycate it or you oxidize it. So that's when our um, polyunsaturated oils might come in there as an oxidizing agent. Um, diabetes comes in there with the high blood sugar. You damage LDL, it becomes small dense LDL. And it's actually the receptor site on the LDL that gets damaged. So it can no longer bind back into the liver and be taken up by the liver. So here's the kicker. Where does small dense LDL get taken out of circulation? 
by specialised cells in the artery wall. So specialised phagocytes in the artery wall because it can no longer be taken out by the liver. So how do you get glycated, oxidised cholesterol into your artery wall from small dense LDL? So I think we need to move away from thinking of LDL um, as bad. We need to get more into the detail, and the detail is whether that LDL has been damaged. If we've got time, how do you know that your LDL is in the healthy or the unhealthy um, form? Um, there's a proxy measure, which is fasting triglyceride divided by HDL. And if that is less than 0.87, then you have none of your LDL in the unhealthy form. So to say that again, that is fasting triglyceride divided by HDL. If it's less than 0.87, then your cholesterol, your LDL is in healthy form. But if you think back to your diabetic patients, how many of them have a triglyceride which is um, around the same as their HDL? I would say close to none. You know, it's very, very common in your diabetic patients to see your, the triglyceride at four or five and the HDL at 0.8. You know, that ratio is six times where it should be. What that tells me is that de novo lipogenesis is just working um, flat tack. So what do you have to do is you have to lower the blood sugar. And how do you do that? Stop putting the raw material in. Stop telling people it's okay to eat kuma. Stop telling them it's okay to eat Vogel's bread. Stop telling them that it's okay um, to have a little bit of potato. You know, they need to get their carbohydrates really, really low. And that's the nature of low-carb ketogenic diet. It's really trying to turn off de novo lipogenesis. And then you really then need to just... Um, think of the role of insulin. Insulin is an incredibly powerful hormone. So everyone knows that hormones are powerful. You know, you only have to live with a teenage boy to know that, um, that hormones are powerful, you know. So, but I would say that insulin trumps them all. Insulin is a nutrient sensor, so it's sensing the amount of blood glucose, but it's a growth hormone. It's a growth factor. And when we're a fetus, we want to grow. Um, when we're an infant, we want to grow. When we're a teenager, we want to grow. And maybe if we're a bodybuilder, we want to grow. Everyone else wants to stop growing. Okay. If you've got high insulin, you're going to keep growing. And it's kind of that simple. And what's insulin sensing? It's predominantly sensing blood glucose, which is the amount of carbohydrate we eat. And quite frankly, we're eating too much carbohydrate, but we're eating the wrong types of carbohydrate, particularly. You know, we've got to avoid sugar, we've got to avoid fructose, and we've got to avoid processed carbs. Thank you for clarifying that. So when you're talking to your patients, could you sort of describe what you would tell them to eat in a typical day? If we could think about, are we yeah. having three meals a day, two meals a day? Yeah. What's on the plate? I usually begin by asking them what they would have in a typical day. And I start by saying, Congratulations, you know, you are doing what we have been teaching you to do for the last um, 40 years, you know. You're, you're eating your cornflakes and yogurt and fruit. Um, you're having your piece of fruit at lunch, I mean, at morning tea. You're having your two wholemeal bread sandwiches at lunchtime. You're having some dried fruit um, at afternoon tea. And then you're having your meat and potatoes and veggies at night. And of course, you feel like a little treat to hot chocolate at the, at the end of the day, maybe with the Tim Tam, but that's only a little bit, you know, 
you're actually following the guidelines. And the science says that people have followed the guidelines. I would just suggest that the guidelines have probably been wrong. You know, the decisions that were made by the Select Committee back in 1977 and the food pyramid that came from that, that emphasizes six to 11 servings of grains, I think is wrong. I think it has significantly contributed to the tsunami of obesity and diabetes. So I start by saying, congratulations, you know, you have this problem, whether it's obesity or type 2 diabetes, as a consequence of following the instructions. And I apologize. I say, well, you know, as a medical professional, I need to put my hand up and I need to apologize for you because I've been part of that message that has resulted in you being sick. And then I say to them, but we've got some changes to make. So let's look at breakfast. Could you do an omelet? And um, they might, they usually say, yeah. And I say, what's so nice about the omelet is you could throw heaps of vegetables in there um, and some protein. So that's nice. Then I say, if you've had a decent breakfast, you're going to make it all the way through to lunchtime without needing to snack. So try and do that. Then a chicken salad. Do you reckon you could do a chicken salad with heaps of olive oil? on it and put some good quality protein in there and they'll go yep and then i go dinner dinner's not much different to what you've been doing but just leave out the potatoes and most people go yeah yeah i can do that so it doesn't really sound that much different from what um, people are doing they're just dropping out the bread dropping out the cereal and being a little bit more disciplined about not having snacks. I wonder if you could just clarify about vegetables, because ve- not all vegetables are made equal. And I tend to think about vegetables below the ground and above the ground. So can you tell me your thoughts on what vegetables we should be telling our patients to eat? So um, that's a fantastic question. And yes, go um, separate above ground and below ground. That just makes a simple, quick message. If you're looking at the science a little bit more closely, we use um, seven grams of carbohydrate per 100 grams as the cutoff between low and high carb, and a carrot sits um, right at that 7%. So if you're talking a little bit more detail and people have got a bit more knowledge, I usually say, yeah, you can decide whether you put the carrot and the beetroot in or out, depending on whether you're going low carb or keto. If you're trying to go keto, which is trying to get your total daily carbohydrate down to around 20 grams, and if you, just to put that into perspective, a piece of bread is 15 grams of carbohydrates. So we're talking about 20 grams of carbs. That's pretty strict. You know, they're not going to be able to put the carrot and beetroot in if they're aiming for that. But if you're aiming for low carb, which is more like um, 50 grams a day, then you could probably put the carrot and beetroot in. So you know, the, the detail comes in the subsequent consultations. The first one is above ground, yes, below ground, no. Thank you for clarifying that. So, Glenn, five years has been discussed as being the optimal window for reversing diabetes. I just wonder what the science is behind this number and also if you've had success with reversing diabetes and what people who have had it for decades. Yeah, so um, I'd like to go back a step, Louise, and I'd like to talk about pre-diabetes. So I think that people have insulin resistance for 10 to 20 years before their HbA1c starts to change. Um, And I think um, it's really important that 
Well, as GPs, we have an obligation to try and pick up the disease as early as possible. We do that with cervical screening, we do it with breast cancer, we do it with mole checks. So we should be trying to do it with metabolic syndrome as well. So I like to order a fasting insulin and a fasting C-peptide. Now I had to look up what a C-peptide is, but every time the body makes an insulin, it's um, linked to a C-peptide. Um, so there's a one-to-one -one ratio. And when they're cleaved, um, they go off, but insulin's a very unstable molecule. The C-peptide is very, or is more stable. So probably better to measure in the C-peptide. Now, if insulin and or C-peptide is raised, then this person has hyperinsulinemia. Um, they're likely then to go on and develop insulin resistance. Um, I talk about a nagging partner. So when you... Uh, form your new relationship and your partner says um, honey will you go out and get some firewood you um, go straight out get firewood and bring it in um, a year goes by and your partner says honey will you go and get some firewood and you say well in the next ad break 10 years goes by and your partner says um, what do you go out and get some firewood and you go go and get it yourself you know that's really an analogy of um, insulin resistance that the tissues just get sick of being bombarded by insulin and they become resistant. Um, so insulin resistance is really what's behind obesity, diabetes, and the whole of the metabolic syndrome. And we need to be picking that up really, really early. Um, so I would suggest that we do the fasting insulin, the fasting C-peptide, but there's other clues. What about a raised uric acid? Um, that's a clue to metabolic syndrome. What about a raised ferritin in somebody that doesn't have hemochromatosis? Um, that is as well. The raised triglyceride, um, that's part of it also. So we get some clues. Oh, and the abnormal liver function tests, you know. Um, Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is now the biggest cause of liver disease, and it's completely reversible. In fact, it goes away in about two weeks when you start on a low-carb ketogenic diet. So those mildly abnormal liver function tests and I kind of hope this helps because the worst part of my job is deciding whether to file or not to file the slightly abnormal test. You know, no problem when you've got someone comes in unexpectedly with an HbA1c of 100. You know exactly what to do. But what happens when someone comes in with an AST and the normal range, I think, is up to 50, is it? And it comes in at 55 and you stare at it and you just get angry because you go, Am I going to have to do something or am I just going to file it? To me, I'm saying don't file it. That's a, a really early sign of metabolic syndrome, significant metabolic dysregulation. Um, that person needs to have a fasting insulin. They need to have a C-peptide. We need to look at their triglycerides particularly. You know, that's the time to intervene really, really early. And then, so that's pre-diabetes. -pre Pre-diabetes is also easy to fix. Um, once people have diabetes, it does become more difficult because their level of insulin resistance is much higher, but certainly not impossible. Five years, um, yeah, that makes sense. But can you reverse diabetes as someone that's had it for 20 years? The answer is yes, sometimes. But the problem is when the beta cells have been redlining it for 20 years, often um, they're burnt out. And there are indeed some two type, type 2 diabetics who should have insulin, but only 
the burnt out um, type 2 diabetics. There is no place for insulin in any other type 2 diabetic. I will say that again, type 2 diabetes is hyperinsulinemia. It is a brain fart to prescribe insulin to type 2 diabetics who are hyperinsulinemic and who have insulin resistance. That is just not thinking. And it's because we get mixed up in our head between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is not enough insulin. Type 2 diabetes is too much insulin. Now, if you are supervising a registrar and the registrar said, I've just seen a patient with hyperthyroidism and I gave them some thyroxine, you would go, whoa, 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 hang on. Okay, how does it sound? I've just seen a new type 2 diabetic patient and I've given them insulin. It's no different. It's just not thinking. You know, don't make the problem worse. Go right back to where the problem starts and it starts with too much carbohydrate in the diet. Metformin's useful, okay, because metformin improves insulin resistance. We know that. We know that from polycystic ovary syndrome, okay. But all the other medications, they make insulin resistance worse and particularly insulin. I'm just thinking of a, a man I've seen over the last month. He was on 500 units a day of insulin. 500 units a day of insulin. He came to one of these lectures. He dropped it down to 100 overnight. Made absolutely no difference to anything. He was so insulin resistant that it made no difference dropping 400 units of insulin. You know, it's the wrong treatment. Please, please stop doing it. Please start thinking about what's behind this. I, I think we should actually rename this rather than type 2 diabetes. We should call it processed food disease. That stops us from getting confused with type 1 diabetes, not enough insulin. Let's give it a completely different name or just call it metabolic syndrome. You know, type 2 diabetes is the canary in the mine shaft. But by the time you've got diabetes, you've got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You've got hypertension. You've got hypertriglyceridemia. And you've probably got plaque in your coronary arteries. You know, it's metabolic syndrome. Let's just probably call it that. I read that in the United States, seven out of eight American adults have some manifestation of insulin resistance. So only one out of eight American adults is not insulin resistant. So you don't have to be very clever to diagnose it, I guess, because it's the majority, isn't it? So you alluded to um, other parameters. Are you seeing other things reverse as soon as you get these people on the low-carb diet? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what's exciting. Um, so what do people tell me? They say, my joints stop aching. And I think of the most dramatic example of that was a man in a meeting and he said, can I stop you for a minute, Dr. Davies, and tell you a story? And I said, yeah, I love stories. And he said, I've been on keto for 19 days. Um, this morning I went for my pre-anesthetic check for my knee joint replacement. The doctor asked me, how was my pain? And I said, zero out of 10. And the doctor said, oh, we usually do the scale the other way around. Do you mean it's really bad? And he said, no, I've got no pain. My knee doesn't hurt at all anymore. So 19 days on keto, he went from lining up for a general anesthetic and a $26,000 operation to leaving there and being fine. So joint pain stopped. People don't feel hungry anymore. And one person said to me, 
doctor, you don't understand my hunger. My hunger is very, very different to your hunger. When I get hungry, it becomes a pain. And then I can't distract myself from it. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And I'm going, whoa, no, that's not what my hunger is like. And she said, for the first time in the, my life that I can remember, my hunger is not like that anymore. So people stop feeling hungry. People talk about mental clarity. One woman I just saw before we started this podcast, she said, I'm really worried because I'm losing too much weight and all my um, friends are calling me too skinny. Her BMI was actually 22, so her BMI was perfect. But because we're so used to seeing big people now, all her friends were saying that she was too skinny. But she said, the reason I'm doing this is for my mental health. She says, my husband and I haven't argued with each other for a whole two months. And I don't care if I get skinny because this is really good for my relationship. Psoriasis goes away. Um, hypertension improves. Children with or teenagers with acne. How many women have you come and said, have said to you, my hair's got dry and thin, my nails are cracking, my skin's dry, and I've kind of gone, um, uh, talk to your hairdresser? Now I go, you've got fat deficiency. You know, that is a deficiency of fat. And people start having more healthy fat in their diet. Their skin improves, their hair improves, their nails stop um, cracking. You know, the list goes on because if you're fueling your brain properly and you're fueling your body properly, then the body knows what to do. But I think many people are not fueling their body properly and they're not giving all the essential elements that the body needs. And I think that this type of eating, a whole food, low-carbohydrate, healthy-fat diet with moderate amounts of protein, it fuels the body properly and it gives the body the macro and micronutrients that it needs. So some studies showing that neurological conditions improve. So Dr. Matt Phillips at Waikato Hospital, wonderful studies on Parkinson's disease, which has shown improvement. Um, improvement in Alzheimer's disease. We're calling Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes, insulin resistance of the brain. So um, we're seeing improvement in, um, in cognitive function. You know, the list goes on, you know, and, and it starts sounding like snake oil, but it's the truth. It really helps my clients, but it also helps me because I'm no longer struggling with these conditions that I didn't know what to do with. So someone comes in with hypertension, they need to change their diet, first of all. They don't need to start on a medicine. You know, how often have you written essential hypertension? You know, it's not essential hypertension. It's due to the fact that they're insulin resistant and they're having too much carbohydrate. We need to write insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, not essential hypertension. Thanks for that, Glenn. Makes sense. I suppose the other things that go with, you're talking a lot about diet, but are there other things that you talk about with your patients as well, such as sleep and exercise, uh, stress, all those sorts of things. So Louise, I know you have uh, an interest in lifestyle medicine and you might um, hate me for saying this, but um, I absolutely, completely focus on nutrition because I have found that people start exercising without being told to. Just think about it for a little while. You have a really high carbohydrate um, diet your blood, your blood sugar goes up, insulin follows it, blood sugar comes down, and then you get this period of time where you have high insulin and low blood sugar. The body says high insulin and it goes, I'm having a hypo. And what do you do in a hypo? You feel like lying down 
and craving um, carbohydrate-rich foods. That's the body's response to high insulin. People with type 2 diabetes aren't lazy. They have this very, very powerful hormone, which is telling them not to exercise. Your body would not naturally go out and exercise if you were having a hypo. It picks up the high insulin, thinks you're having a hypo, and tells you to lie down, rest, and crave something sweet. So you take the high insulin away, people get the energy back, and they start exercising. They know they should be exercising. They start doing it without even being told. And sleep. You know, sleep improves um, for a majority of people. Not, not for everyone, but for the majority. So I don't have to talk about sleep. And people's mental health improves, their mood improves. So, you know, I don't have to start talking about mental health strategies for most people. Now, I really don't want it to make it sound like snake oil because it's not going to fix everyone. But in my first consultation, because we're time limited, I just focus on nutrition. If other aspects of lifestyle medicine come out subsequently, then we deal with them. But I find in most cases I don't need to because they fix themselves. You know, the, the body's natural tendency is to heal itself. I think that's why we're successful as general practitioners because most people are going to get better by themselves irrespective of what we do. You know, so the body's natural tendency is heal. And if you um, correct the nutrition, you give all those macro and micronutrients that the body needs, it starts to heal itself. So I think that's why sleep improves and joints improve and energy improves and cognition improves. So I find I'm generally not having to talk about those other aspects, but I'm very happy to if I need to. So you alluded to the 15-minute consultation. You know, we're always pressed for time and trying to get information across. So you've come up with this model of a support group. Can you tell our listeners about what you're doing there and how it came about, how you manage it, and how successful it's been? Yeah, so the, the group is called Reverse T2 Diabetes Total. It's a closed Facebook um, group, but love you to um, to ask to be a member and we'll we'll approve you as long as you're not a dodgy troll or something like that. And we've recorded most of our weekly meetings, so um, there's a, a massive um, video library there. And um, reverse type 2 diabetes or reverse T2 diabetes total is not me. It's a group of um, really dedicated volunteers. We have about 3,000 um, members on that Facebook um, page. We had a, a beginner's meeting last night. I didn't count, but I estimate there were 70 to 80 people at the meeting. And these people, they get success and then they start talking to their work colleagues, to their family members. They start demanding that the cafes um, have um, keto options. So it's like um, dropping a pebble into a pond, the ripple effect, and then it ripples outside of total. You know, we've been called the keto capital of New Zealand, you know, but it ripples out, you know, it's it's Turangi, it's Mangakino, it's um, it's Tokoroa, you know, so that was happens. And we have a weekly meeting. The Facebook page is quite remarkable. So someone will say, all keto bread tastes dreadful, and then there'll be 20 recipes will get um, up there, you know, for a keto bread. Uh, in fairness, I do think keto bread tastes awful, but... Um, there are certainly some, you know, there are some options. And it just means that I can tell people to go to that Facebook page or I can tell them to come along to the meetings. And it means that I'm not having to go over time with every consultation. Although uh, it's becoming quite common for me to be an hour behind now because um, virtually every chronic condition 
I believe requires this talk. And as you know, it occurs after you've dealt with the problem that they came in with. And uh, shared medical appointments is something that you've been using as well, I understand. I wonder if you, the, the, this might be new to some of our listeners, so can you tell us about those and how, how they work? Yeah, for certain. Um, although I have to admit to being a fraud there because um, I haven't been able to introduce them as an ongoing part of the practice, but shared medical appointments is nothing new. It's used... Um, particularly in the UK and the US, it's used in hospital medicine and in primary care. And basically what you're doing is getting eight to 12 people with the same condition. So let's take um, eight to 12 pre-diabetics. You bring them into an hour's consultation slot. You have a facilitator that at the beginning talks about the rules and particularly confidentiality. So, Interestingly, in the, in the US, the most litigious society on earth, there's never been a single law case about breaching confidentiality within a shared medical appointment. And I think it's because people recognise that they're privileged to be sharing somebody else's health journey, and I think they're very respectful of that. So people sign the confidentiality, they learn the rules, they're there with a, a facilitator, then the clinician comes in and it doesn't have to be a doctor, it can be a dietitian, it can be a clinical pharmacist, it can be a, a diabetes educator. They come in and you basically just have consultations sequentially, um, one after another, um, with the 12 people that are there. Ideally, what you try and do is um, the facilitator would write up on a whiteboard what per- each person's question is, and you would try and address that um, with the person. But you know, if they've also got a painful toe from gout, you still got to have your consultation about that. You know, if they, you know, any, any, just like a normal consultation, it's just sequential. The nice thing is that the other people in the room get to hear the question and they get to hear the answer. So, you know, if you're dealing with a group of diabetics, one person might ask about um, foot care, someone else might ask about um, ulcers, someone else might ask about ketogenic diet. So everyone hears, everyone benefits, and it's fun. You know, like I used to run them on a Friday afternoon just because it was so much fun. It brings some life back into your consultations. Uh, another thing is, um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but have you been explaining a condition to someone and you're actually listening to yourself and you go, geez, I wonder if that's actually true? <laughs> <laughs> you go, I must look that up, but there's only one other person in the room, so it doesn't really matter. When, you, um, when you're doing like a COPD group, actually, you've got to do a bit of preparation. You know, you've, you've got to go and remember what the CAT score is. You've got to make sure you've got the piece of paper there. You know, um, if you're talking about obstructive sleep apnea, and they can't just bowl up without the um, questionnaires. So, and, um, you know, the new medications, COPD, you can't kind of go like, like I normally would in consultation. Or I know there's a new one. It's called NNRN or something like this. I'll let you just look it up. Yeah. So you're, you're actually a better doctor when you've got 12 people there. So that's kind of shared medical appointments. But I haven't managed to get it going because it's just hard to introduce something new into a busy practice. Yeah, absolutely. You've talked about the ripple effect, and I wonder how that goes with improving health equity for our patients and uh, access to health-appropriate care. What's your experience been there? So I just 
with that question, go back to evolutionary biology. This way that I'm suggesting people eat is basically the way that we've eaten um, since the beginning of, of humankind. You know, we've eaten um, animals, we've eaten kaimoana, we've eaten berries and we've eaten um, vegetables when they've been available, but we haven't eaten fields of grain. So it's just going back. And genetically, Europeans have had 12,000 years to adapt to the impact of agriculture. Maori have had 200 years. So Captain Cook, as well as bringing influenza and um, other things, he, uh, he bought flour and sugar. And we know that Maori prior to colonisation had fantastic wellness, had fantastic physique, had fantastic um, teeth. And now we know that that is not the case. So what I observe, because it's only been 200 years, I observe that Maori do better when they go to a traditional diet or back to a traditional diet than Europeans do. And when have you ever heard someone say the health statistics for Maori and Pacifica are better with, you know, it's hardly ever said. I believe that the response to a traditional diet, a low-carb, healthy-fat diet, is better and quicker for Maori than it is for Europeans. And I suspect that that's also the same for Pacifica. Um, Dr. Lily Fraser in um, Auckland does wonderful work in the Pacifica community in South Auckland. Um, you know, so I think if you are Maori or Pacifica, I think this is the healthy diet for you, certainly. Thanks, Glenn. And I just wanted to conclude our podcast today. What would your take-home messages be for our listeners? First thing is diabetes is a reversible condition. Diabetes is not a chronic condition that should be managed in a palliative way with palliative medications. Every client deserves the opportunity to reverse their type 2 diabetes. If you are not giving them that opportunity, if you're not offering them that chance, I think you're failing your client. So I challenge everyone um, who's sat through this lecture to now, um, I challenge every one of you that you have a responsibility to offer a cure. I think if I turned up to an oncologist and I was prescribed the palliative option when there was a curative option, I'd be pretty cross. I think there will be clients with diabetes who have not been offered this cure who will be really cross with you if you don't give them the opportunity. Second thing is that low-carbohydrate and ketogenic diets are powerful. These are powerful tools. These are more powerful than medications. So be careful when you prescribe them. Okay, If you prescribe a ketogenic diet to someone who's on insulin, they will need to dramatically drop their insulin immediately or they will have a hypo. So you have to be willing for people to email you their blood glucose every day um, and you have to manage the insulin very, very carefully. You have to be willing to de-prescribe. And that's not something that doctors are good at. We're good at adding medicines. You will have to de-prescribe because people on blood pressure medicines will start falling over because this creates their blood pressure really quickly. So you have to become expert at de-prescribing. I think um, if you can have a continuous glucose monitor, something like the Freestyle Libra, fantastic if you're managing somebody who is coming off their insulin. And then offer support. If you have health coaches and hips in your practice, then use them to support people as they're going through this journey because there's a lot to learn. 
My other message is this is all about insulin. Insulin is a powerful hormone and realize that it's about insulin and people's insulin is high. So think about that and think that insulin is a growth factor. Insulin makes people feel tired. Also, people's lives will be much better. They'll be more energetic. They'll have less joint pain. They won't have to take a whole lot of medicines that are causing um, side effects, but your life will be better because I have people come in and they say at the end of the consultation, that is the best consultation that I've ever had in my life with anyone. Thank you. They say, um, why has nobody told me this before? Why has nobody ever given me the opportunity even to reverse this diabetes and feel better? And that's what we're all about, isn't it? Um, you know, we're here for our clients and for our patients, but isn't it nice when you get some feedback that makes you feel that you're doing a good job? And now I feel that I am doing a good job. You know, I feel that I am practicing medicine, the type of medicine that if one of our forefathers, like Hippocrates, if he was watching, I think he'd be proud of the way I'm practicing medicine now, whereas I think three years ago he would have been really disappointed. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time today, Glenn. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please do so. Also, visit our website, goodfellowunit.org, to find a list of resources that we've used today. Thanks for listening.